I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Wednesday, March 21st, 2018, from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We are begging the president not to fire the special counsel. Don't create a constitutional crisis. Congress cannot preempt such a firing. Our only constitutional remedy is after the fact through impeachment. No one wants that outcome, Mr. President. Please don't go there. So said Senator Jeff Flake in a tweet the first time he used the word impeachment, to which Tommy Vitor, a former Obama administration staffer and one of the hosts of Pod Save America, tweeted, stop begging, pass a law. Then McKay Coppins tweets, and McKay Coppins is like a game of telephone, isn't it? He's a, he's a really good reporter, and he's something of the Mormon whisperer. And he asks uh, Vitor, dismissing a Republican senator threatening impeachment if the president takes a specific action, as just talk strikes me as weird. But he asks, what's the law? That's the good question. What's the law that the Senate can pass that would stop the president from firing Bob Mueller? They talk about this on Pod Save America all the time. So here are the bills that were introduced and are going nowhere. In fact, one of them has essentially been withdrawn. First, there is the Tillis-Coons bill. Tom Tillis, Republican, North Carolina. Chris Coons, Democrat, Delaware. And this bill says, if the special counsel were removed, then a panel of three federal judges would have 14 days to decide whether removal was proper If the panel disagreed with the attorney general's decision, it could reinstate the special counsel immediately. It wouldn't be the attorney general's decision because he's recused himself in this matter, of course. But let's think about the Tillis-Coons bill. Practically, it has no chance of becoming a law. But let's say it did. Would it stop Trump from firing Mueller? I don't think so. I think the specter of a three-judge panel waiting two weeks and then issuing a ruling is something that Trump, if he was desperate, stupid, or bold enough to fire the special counsel, I don't think he'd be intimidated by that. My evidence is that he's not intimidated by or listens to or barely even respectful of actual judges on actual benches with actual authority that's actually been tested in the past. They don't phase this guy. He does what he wants to do. And also, it it literally wouldn't stop Mueller from being fired. It might, if it worked out, get him rehired after 14 days, and that would be a crisis in and of itself. Then there's the Graham Booker bill, Lindsey Graham, Republican, South Carolina, Cory Booker, Democrat, New Jersey. And that bill, it wouldn't be after the fact to fire Mueller. The president would have to first seek pre-approval from a three-judge panel, and the special counsel could be fired only after the panel found that the removal criteria had been met. Some questions. Which judges are on the panel? What's the criteria? What would the panel decide? And if it went to the Supreme Court, which it would after the three-judge panel, what would they decide? I think they might decide, you know what, guys? We have a constitution. It has a remedy for all this. That's called impeachment. What's this nonsense with this three-judge panel that you just decided that seems to be unique in American history? I'm not saying, or top legal minds who've looked at this aren't saying that these two laws or these two quasi-safeguard, kinda shaky guardrails, uh, the legal experts that I've seen aren't saying they'd be unconstitutional, but they might be, and our 5-4 to Supreme Court might just say, enough with this. If you don't like what the president's done, you can impeach him.
Now, of course, neither of these bills are going to pass. They're not even going to be brought to the floor. And I would think it would be a fine thing, a good thing, if Jeff Flake would go on the record and say, I would sign on to both of these bills. I call them to be on the floor. But I also think that these laws would essentially do diddly squat to safeguard the republic. I think impeachment would do a lot of squat. What's the opposite of diddly squat? Doodly bench press? No idea. But impeachment is real It's tested, it's legitimate, and it's powerful. And Jeff Flake saying this might lead to impeachment is a lot, lot, lot more meaningful than Jeff Flake saying, I would favor a law that might do something or might not and probably won't be passed. And anyway, there's always impeachment, just like Casablanca. We'll always have impeachment. On the show today, I spiel about the lawyers' lawyers going at it. Oh, this is going to be fun. But first, a story about athletics and mental health. Really well told. Author Mary Pilon wrote about an Olympic sailor, one of the best in the world at sailing, who has a mental illness that's both fascinating and harrowing. Mary and I talk right after this. Kevin Hall is a great sailor, a world-class sailor. He's also a brilliant guy. He majored in French and math at Brown. He's a pioneer in challenging the Olympics because he's a survivor of testicular surgery. So he was able to compete in the Olympics even though he took testosterone. He had to, essentially, to live. So for all these things, they pale. They are perhaps the most anodyne things about Kevin Hall, because Kevin Hall also has a particular form of uh, bipolar disorder, and it manifests itself in something called Truman Show Syndrome, which is a description for a feeling that you're in someone else's TV show. The name of the book about him is The Kevin Show, an Olympic athlete's battle with mental illness. Mary Pilon wrote the book. Hello, Mary. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Mary, you're a, I'm going to tell you something about yourself. You're a, sport, <laughs> you're a sports journalist. <laughs> yes. But you also write and are interested in just all sorts of things about society. Did you come to this as a sports story or a story about a mental illness that had sports at its center? So this was really kind of a convergence of a bunch of stuff for me. So my mother was a shrink, and I did the thing that a lot of people do when they go off to go to college and build their own careers, which is say, I'm never taking a psych class. I want nothing to do with the field. I was on the sports desk at the Times at the time doing some very traditional sports coverage um, as the paper mandates and then some very unconventional stuff. And so a colleague of mine, Andy Laren, walked by my desk and he had heard about Truman Show Disorder and said, there was an athlete mentioned in one of these journal articles. And how weird is that? And I... And he was the only athlete by name who was mentioned, correct. right? Yeah, yeah. And I believe the only case study. The only case, that's name. right. Yeah, I that. so yeah. it was both. And... Um, I had covered a couple of Olympics by then, and I've become fascinated with what you don't see on TV at the Olympics and what kind of the reality of being an athlete is because that lifestyle is so different than my own. Um, And so I thought, well, I just can't not ask about this. But I reached out to USA Sailing thinking it was kind of on a whim, like, oh, there may not be a story. He may not want to talk about this. It was right after the America's Cup crash. This was in 2014. And they said, well, uh, we're not sure if he's active in the sport. And as you know, that's a great time to actually reach out to somebody. And it was a year out from the crash. So I just started talking to Kevin just to try and get a sense of 
what he'd gone through. And maybe there'd be like a Sunday dress page story in there. I don't know. And then the reporting just kind of spun out from there. Tell us, tell the my listeners, remind us about this crash in the America's Cup 2013. So, great question. So in 2013, the America's Cup was going to be even bigger and grander than before. So the America's Cup runs on these two-year cycles. And this one was going to be staged in San Francisco. So Kevin was on the Artemis boat during a test run in pretty mild conditions yeah. in 2013 leading up to this. And the boat capsizes. And the the, the boats are made out of now of this carbon that when it snaps, isn't just like plastic. Uh, it splinters into yeah. these little daggers. It's very dangerous. And, and you described the sound as every tree in the forest yes. cracking at once. Yes. And that was how a sailor had described it to me. And I thought, first of all, obviously that would be very stressful in Mm -hmm. in dealing with the aftermath of a crash, but also very, very dangerous. And so this boat capsizes and someone dies, Andrew Bart Simpson. And I think that for people close to the sport, Simpson's death was a turning point because it became real. He was a huge, huge loss, you know, pretty universally beloved by his teammates, you know, a husband, a father. And the stakes became really clear that, you know, there might be some pieces of this that need to be pulled back. Right. And for the protagonist of The Kevin Show, Kevin Hall, who's on the boat, it's a trigger. Right. And the way the book opens, and it opened this way because it was something that Kevin, you know, and and other teammates had talked about um, that I thought was so striking was that when the crash happened, there was a moment when Kevin was, you know, kind of in emergency mode and trying to do all the things you do and trying to save his teammate's life and find out who was safe, where he wasn't sure if it was really happening or not. The surreal had become real. And losing a teammate like that will never make sense. It's always going to be horrible. And there is something surreal about what happened. Yes, everyone, this is the word that people grasp onto to describe something that's inexplicable. They say surreal. Let's go back to when he's a student at Brown. By the way, he was chose between Brown and the Naval Academy. Yeah. So talk about (laughs) bipolarity. He's a student at Brown and he goes to visit a girlfriend in Boston, right? Yes. And he has his first episode. They're going to meet up in Boston. And he has this first episode. So the way Kevin's described it to me is it was the first time he was going to fail at something. Mm-hmm. He's at Brown, plucked for this Olympic training program. And that's really great news, obviously. And the idea there, and they still do this in some sports, is to get you some exposure to Olympic sailing, the level of competition. But the bad news is this really pulls him out of his routine at Brown. Um, and he had pretty he had eased into the team really well, and the team was doing really fantastically when it was competing. So he starts doing what he calls spinning up. So he's staying up late, he's feeling like he hears a lot of coincidences in music. Mm-hmm. And he takes a bus to Boston and thinks that there's a director that's telling him he needs to plan a kind of like Live Aid style concert. And this is 1989. So that's very much in the, the zeitgeist. And, and director is not literally a voice. It's like he's he called it a vapor to you. Yeah. You and I think, it? you know, Kevin and I have talked about this a lot and it's evolved over time. Mm-hmm. So sometimes and it depends on the episode. So he's described it to me as sometimes like a presence. Sometimes it is more of like a voice mm-hmm. um, or a command. But yeah. there's this idea, generally speaking, of something greater than me telling me to do something and that this is. I'm being filmed and this is an activity. This is something that people are going to be watching. So when you and I and others ingest media, we are pretty good about usually saying like, oh, that was a film and this is reality. And with Kevin, those lines in these episodes get totally, totally blurred. Well, it's so interesting. And I just want to I, I want to spend a little time talking about the nature of the Truman Show uh, disorder itself specifically. Describe it. Sure. So the Truman Show delusion was coined by these two doctors, doctors Joel and Ian Gold. They wrote a book called Suspicious Minds that 
looks at how cultural forces are shaping madness. And the thrust of it is kind of like the name leads you to believe that when in a manic episode, you think you're the star of your own reality TV show. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed a lot of people who have this who aren't just Kevin. So I could get a handle on kind of what that spectrum looked like. And there's kind of generally speaking two flavors of it. There's the grandiose, which is what Kevin has, which is I'm the star of the show. I'm planning Live Aid. I'm, you know, being watched. I have this public service message I'm getting across. And then there's a persecutory. I interviewed a young man who had an episode where he drove from the small college he was at to New York City thinking that his girlfriend, um, who actually wasn't his girlfriend, was a Rockefeller and that the Rockefellers were out to get him. So he drove to New York with the intention of climbing, you know, to the top of 30 Rockefeller Center. And that's where he was busted by the cops. Let me ask you a question. So the Golds write this book, uh, Suspicious Minds, and it's about how culture influences mental illness. And I've read a lot about that. And it's true. I mean, there are some cultures where anorexia is unknown. And there are some cultures, the idea of running amok, which is popular or something that really exists in Indonesia and doesn't, that idea doesn't (laughs) exist so much in other places. However, there does seem to be a little bit of it that's influenced by what's actually happening in the world. But it also seems a little bit is the person inside the mania will, of course, react to their surroundings and find a way to process this insanity, these weird, weird thoughts by if if there is no such thing as Google, you're not going to imagine a Google type thing. But if there is such a thing as Google, you're going to kind of work that into your mania. So it seems like it could transcend culture and the cultural moment. Absolutely. And, you know, the history of this is fascinating to me because if this was the 60s, we would be talking about or the 70s talking about, well, the Russians are watching me. Right, right, right. And and the, the my, my phones are being tapped. Right. You know? Bro- broadcasting and, from the Empire State Building. Right, Radio right, waves right. were big. Right. And um, this idea of a show within a show has been around a long time. And what I think is so interesting now, and the Golds make this point, too, is that they described having patients who came in and would say, the government's watching me. And they would say, no, like, and I'm making this up, but like, you're a dentist in Ohio. Like, nobody, the government's not watching you. And then the Times would report on the NSA wiretapping stuff. And and they would say, no, look, like, and, and I'm interested in that today, like that kind of blurred line between do we all have this because right, of because, social media? <laughs> right. The insane idea that we're the star of a show, except that's exactly what we are. Right, and so right. here's Kevin having this episode wearing Google Glass at the Legoland. Yes. It's not so implausible <laughs> to think that someone at Legoland is putting on some sort of TV show for viewers right. somewhere using the Google Glass. I feel extra sorry for him. How do you separate reality from his unreality? Absolutely. And one of the really trippy meta things about working on this book is I started reporting it in 2014 and was puttering along and, you know, reporting out the delusions and getting all the paperwork together and like emailing, you know, sources and stuff, um, the same kind of dutiful journalistic stuff you would do. An indie project, and then the election happened halfway yeah, through. And yeah. I think anybody, particularly if you were in New York then, would describe that as a surreal moment. And that I had been thinking about, like, male identity and mental illness and reality TV for two years, like, kind of in my own little writer cave. And then this happened, and I rewrote the ending of the book because I realized that we're all in Black Mirror. And I had been reporting on a guy who he thought he was crazy. And now, you know, to go to Kurt Anderson's point in Fantasyland, like, we're all kind of delusional. And like, we're all in this world where reality seems like it's really hard to to grasp at. Yeah. As you're writing the book, and you're chronicling this guy who is being told things by the director. So an unseen force is compelling behavior and creating sometimes really interesting details. So here you are, 
and you hear about how he's thinking about things or what he does, and you're saying, that's interesting. That's an interesting plot detail. It's almost like there's a little bit of complicity in that Mm -hmm. an unseen force is providing these compelling details that are emboldening you to report on or me to read on. It's a weird feeling. It was really strange to start a project and know that I was going to be writing something with an invisible antagonist. Yeah. The whole process from the beginning was really surreal. And Kevin was really good about, like, what we... I know that even the best reporter can never get in somebody else's head completely, right? But he had journal entries. He had notes. He had these really vivid descriptions, which I relied on heavily. Um, But he was also really good about saying, like, this was probably a hallucination. And let me tell you why. Or in some cases, there were outputs. So the Legoland Google Glass episode, like, he had taken a bunch of photos. And there were a bunch of a trail of Facebook posts leading up to that that I could then look at and say, Any video well, ever? Can you, did you actually have video? I can't remember if he, he had a little bit of, um, of some with the Google glass. Um, but what was interesting, cause I asked him about how did that fit into the director? And he thought, Oh, well that was supposed to be me controlling the camera. And we've seen this, right? Like I think it's CNN that does like the eye report stuff. Yeah. So he thought it was like one of those things yeah. like that, that was being woven into the show as well. And so the, the director would watch him post on social media leading up to this stuff. And and that was interesting to me, too, because in the 90s, you know, when he would have these episodes, I relied on, you know, friends and teammates and folks who were around him to say, yeah, he had him in sleeping or he would say this stuff that didn't make sense. And then with Legoland, there was this whole digital trail that I could follow. So there were a few things like that where I thought, wow, that's so interesting. Like We all now have these trails of our our health. And Kevin also said that leading up to these episodes, the more recent ones, he would have these really long email soliloquies um, and stuff that he could really pull back that was kind of the output of the director's machinations. How has the medication changed that treats this? It cha- Well, and I'm not a shrink, but I think it's getting better, but there's still a long, long way to go. And I think one of the things I really try to be careful with in this book is it's Kevin's story. It's not everybody with manic depression story. It's not even everybody with Truman Show disorder story. And so talking about treatment, and I think that's another book, right? But like, it's it's really complicated. And some people really just need therapy. Some people, it's a diet thing. Some people, it's a right mix of medication. But I think if we just kind of sit here and say, oh, well, you're crazy. That's not serving anybody well. And I was just shocked at how kind of behind the whole conversation is. How has being as open as he's been, remember, the only person to go by name in that landmark study, how has being as open helped or hurt him personally or professionally? I think personally, you know, and I was kind of coming to this, um, you know, later, and obviously with his cooperation, I think it opened up a lot of conversations around his friends and teammates and family members. And so I found in my interviews, a lot of folks had this response of like, I just didn't know how extreme it was or I had no idea. So I think the advocacy piece has opened up a lot for for him, particularly when you consider that he's shifting from being an athlete to, you know, his next venture. For for Kevin, it's been heartening. And for me, too, I know, to see that there's community forming around this and that people know they're not alone. I think for a long time, that was a feeling that Kevin had. And now he knows that that's far from the case. Mary Pilon is the author of The Kevin Show, an Olympic athlete's battle with mental illness. She is also a contributor to the forthcoming Upon Further Review, the greatest what-ifs in sports history. Mary, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. And now the spiel. 
A man's man. Well, that's a man who's quite a man, quite manly in the traditional manly sense, as defined by men. A comics comic. That's a kind of comic who's funny to the other comics. And since other comics know funny, the implication is that a comics comic is a really good comic. Perhaps not broadly appealing, but a fundamentally sound comic. So why then does the prospect of Trump's lawyers all hiring their own lawyers not connote the same whiff of genius, not even a waft of quality. Trump's lawyer's lawyer. That's actually more like the phrase, babies having babies. And that's the way you got to say it. Babies having babies. Lawyers hiring lawyers. So several of Trump's lawyers have hired lawyers. White House counsel Don McGahn hired William Burke. The same guy was also hired by Reince Priebus when he was White House chief of staff. Reince Priebus not acting in that capacity as a lawyer, but he is a lawyer and, of course, is no longer with the White House. Mike Pence, the attorney general, thought as a general matter he'd better hire an attorney, so he did. Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, has also personally hired his own attorney. Actually, he already did that, a guy named Stephen Ryan. But, you know, one Stephen Ryan, that's not a legal team. So Michael Cohen, apparently busting out the Bar Association directory of most commonly named Jewish lawyers, I think that's an organization he might have been a treasurer of, he chose a David Schwartz to represent him as well. I suppose Jeff Goldberg was on assignment. Mr. Schwartz was on Anderson Cooper 360 the other day, engaging in, shall we say, robust representation of his client's interest. This all gave rise to a theretofore unasked question you know in the She's annals of journalism. And this is an airtight contract, an airtight contract, $1 million per violation. And it's not just the disclosure. Where do you get the $20 million figure? Is because it, there are were, you, well, if you read, if you are read. Are you talking about her appearances on the Make America Horny tour? No, no, no it's, 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 it's. It was not. Now, sitting next to David Schwartz the entire time was Michael Avenatti. Stormy Daniels, Stephanie Clifford, her lawyer. Now, just being a cooler, less sweaty presence than David Schwartz, Avenatti wins. Then Avenatti reached into his bag of tricks, which was literally a bag, a brown paper bag. And he did this. I will describe the visuals after you hear the audio. Let me ask this. Okay? Please do. You're a very passionate guy. Okay, on behalf of your friend, Michael Cohen. My client. Okay, your, your client, Michael yeah. Cohen. Yeah. So let me ask you this. If Michael Cohen is such a stand-up guy, huh. where is he? I, I, no, no, no. Where is this guy? So he's holding a fairly large picture of lawyer Michael Cohen. And it was a somewhat unflattering picture, which is to say a picture of Michael Cohen. I thought this was all pointless grandstanding. Then I remembered this quote. He told HuffPo or HuffPost or HuffPo, whatever it's called now. He said after uh, he was uh, profiled in the Wall Street Journal, he asked, which picture did the Wall Street Journal use of me? Was it good? Cohen added, I am in many respects just like the president. Nothing seems to rattle me, no matter how bad the hate. Well, if Michael Cohen doesn't get rattled like the president doesn't get rattled, then the president might need to insulate himself with many, many, many more lawyers. Perhaps a John Epstein or Andy Bernstein can be added to the legal team. Now, I have said that I believe that Stormy Daniels, Stephanie Clifford, has the better lawyer on her side. I don't know if this means that she has the law on her side. And let me also 
amend that a little bit. Michael Avenatti seems to be a good lawyer. He's won a lot of money for his clients, but he's also something of a blowhard. His site talks about his past and says uh, he joined Green, Brolet, and Wheeler, an L.A. boutique firm. While there, he spearheaded many high-profile cases, including a $10 million defamation case against Paris Hilton, a successful idea theft lawsuit involving the reality show The Apprentice and its producer Mark Burnett, and others. Now, I looked into these. The Paris Hilton $10 million defamation case was a slander case that was hard to prove, but causing Mrs. Hilton some uh, surus, as David Schwartz might say, and it was settled for an undisclosed amount. The Apprentice suit was brought by someone who says Mark, Mark Burnett stole his idea for The Apprentice. It too was settled. We don't know for how much it was settled. It could be pennies on the dollar. On that website, Michael Avenatti also brags this way. Michael prevailed against the NFL after a two-week jury trial in federal district court in Dallas after obtaining a court order requiring Jerry Jones to attend trial and be cross-examined. <laughs> Highlighting the fact that he obtained a court order to get Jerry Jones to testify? Well, what's that about? Jones, by the way, wound up being dropped as a defendant in that suit. And you know what he won? You know what he won for his clients in that suit? About $11,000 each. What that was about was these were people who bought tickets to that Super Bowl that was held at uh, Jerry World in Dallas, and their seats were screwed up. Some of their seats weren't there. Some were uh, obstructed view. And so they sued the NFL. Now, what the NFL offered was $2,400 plus a ticket to the 2012 Super Bowl, a trip to a future Super Bowl with airfare and a four-night hotel stay, or a check for more than $5,000 with documented expenses. I looked into it. That 2012 Super Bowl ticket alone, you know how much that went for? Up to $16,000. So he won his clients after lawyer's fees, I don't know, seven or $8,000. What the NFL was offering were cash and prizes worth um, twice, three times that amount. All right, that's all a little beside the point. On this Daniels case, I don't know what the big reveal is going to be. Let's say Stormy can talk. What's she going to say? She never says the sex was anything but consensual. So I don't see how that affects the many sexual harassment complaints against Donald Trump. She claims intimidation broadly. Apparently, this is something that she says or will say in a 60 Minutes interview. But by who? She never says who. Maybe she'll lay it out more, but she could mean she's just being intimidated by MAGA hat-wearing idiots on the internet. And we've all been there, sister. Maybe this will lower Trump in the eyes of evangelicals. I've heard that argument. This is exactly the kind of argument that a non-evangelical would make about how evangelicals think. In a nutshell, evangelicals who still support Trump have, uh, let's call it a narrative, and it's this. Trump was chosen by God to execute his will, and there is a person in the Bible named Cyrus. Cyrus was a Persian king, and while the Jews were in exile, they returned to uh, Jerusalem under Cyrus the Great. Second temple was built. So by thinking of Donald Trump as Cyrus, and by the way, this goes on especially as it relates to Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu has called him a Cyrus figure. You see this and hear this all the time on the Christian Broadcasting Network. Cyrus was never a Christian. The point was Cyrus was God's vessel, and it brought about good things to an evangelical Christian. So this means an evangelical Christian who believes in this stuff will not punish Donald Trump for acting in unchristian ways. You know, for a while, it's been noted, oh my God, there's a scandal involving the president and a porn star, and we're not even paying attention. This scandal isn't even making a dent against all the other stuff the Trump administration is doing. Well, now, it may be making a dent, and the dent might cause Trump a headache, 
But so far on substance, it seems a lot less important than the many documentable misdeeds and bad policies and possible illegalities and just ongoing train wreck of leadership that this administration represents in ways that aren't salacious, but are deeply, deeply scandalous. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname. Now, to remove him, we have to get the advice from a three-judge panel, and they will judge if another three-judge panel should be impaneled, and then eventually, when they get up to 12 judges, they will be able to play a basketball game against each other with plenty of substitutions. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, her appointment also requires assembling a three-judge panel, specifically Yankee slugger Aaron Judge, Judge Reinhold and Winona Judge. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, warns it's Winona Judd, not Winona Judge. Quick cut to Naomi Judd saying, I'll be the Judd of that. The gist we are a judgment free zone, which is why I sing on the show and also frequently get hit by buses. Umperu dapuru duperu, and thanks for listening. Cue laugh track. Don't cue the laugh track. Unless you want to throw in a laugh track, it's up to you.